it's old timey crimey. I am Christy. And I am Amber. And we are here this week to tell you all the true crime tales of yore. And we have quite the tale for you today. It's a bit epic. It's a little bit epic. It is a little bit epic. Yeah. So we are going to get to that momentarily. But first, Amber, I told you a story for the Patreon just now. What did I tell you about? 40 tiny elephants. 40 tiny elephants! <laughs> or the girl gang known as the 40 elephants, but it was a tiny, so we call it the tiny 40 elephants. And yeah, some, some really incredibly uh, savvy and quick-fingered women. <laughs> I too am a quick-fingered woman. <laughs> you, you, you definitely are one of their ilk. <laughs> and I also have an abundance of sins up in my skirt. A multitude. A multitude. <laughs> multitude of sins. <laughs> so yeah, you'll hear more about the Patreon later in the show. So if you're interested, keep an ear out for that. All right, today we are going to be talking about... Clara Smith Heyman. She was born Clara Barton Smith, September 1st, 1891, in Lawton, Oklahoma. Let's talk about Lawton for a minute. It wasn't even a town. It wasn't even necessarily founded until 10 years after her birth. So it did not exist. She was born in a place that was not real. She was born in the ether, in the, in the never world. So... And Oklahoma as a state wasn't admitted to the Union until 1907, so she was technically born in, like, the territory in a town that didn't exist. Now, 70 years after her birth, Lawton would become the birthplace of someone else, Stephen Hillenburg. Do you know that name at all? No. Yes, I don't know. It sounds, like, familiar, but I could not at all tell you why. He created SpongeBob SquarePants. Oh... And even closer in time to Clara, Joan Crawford lived there. Oh, okay. Movie star of the 20s, 30s, 40s-ish. Now, she was 13 years younger than Clara. Uh, well, that's debatable because... Women lie. Yeah, her exact age is, is kind of a little bit muddled. And we know that Joan Crawford's stepfather ran an opera house in town. So it's very possible that young Clara would have also gone to that same opera house at some point. They might have passed each other in the street. The Crawford family lived there from 1909 to 1917 when her stepfather kind of scraped past an embezzlement charge. He was acquitted, but the town blacklisted him. So they had to leave. Yeah, small town. Now I'm bringing Joan Crawford specifically into this for a reason. She and Clara had something in common. They both really... Like the movies. Crawford wanted to be a dancer, and she did become a movie star. Clara would go on to be in exactly one movie that was eventually destroyed. We'll get there. We'll get there. The road is long, though, and we have miles to go. So a newspaper said that at that time in her life, she was, quote, a girl of common school education and little experience. Now, I'm going to bring that quote back in in a little while. So that quote is finished off later. It does sound very insulting in the moment, though. It does. Yeah, without the rest of it. She did spend time swimming, playing tennis, etc. while in school. And she was just a normal girl. She was uh, around 17, clerking in a, a store in Lawton, just living her life. Yeah, it's like a normal small town girl. Like, yeah. basic education, not a lot of experience because, I mean, we live in a smaller town. There is nothing to do. Yeah. 
And especially back then when you couldn't like drink and hang out with the boys, you were, you didn't do anything. Yeah. She did hang out with one boy. Um, she had a sort of like childhood sweetheart and he happened to be one of the only guys in town that had a car. So and they'd, maybe they'd the only drive. guy in town. Maybe. Yeah, possibly. Not a big place. So let's talk about Jake Hammond. We're going to leave Clara clerking in the store for a little while, but we're going to come back to her eventually. Right now, we're going to talk about Jake Hammond. He was born in 1873 in Granola, Kansas, uh, the middle of five children. His father seemed to have some high-value dealings in cattle, maybe owned a ranch, but you would see in the paper where he's like selling like 50 heads of cattle or something. And he also dabbled in local and party politics. The family really moved around a surprising amount. For a little while, like, they were relocating every six months to two years. His father became the city marshal of Sedan, Kansas, where they were living in the 1880s. And this is how the progression happened in the press. Okay. The newspaper reported that Hammond's father, I must have his name somewhere, Hammond, the father, Papa Hammond, there we go. Papa Hammond. Papa Hammond. The newspaper reported that he and, and another man were competing for the position of city marshal on April 11th, 1884. One week later, the paper says that Papa Heyman is the city marshal. Three weeks later, Papa Heyman is arrested for using his billy club on a man named John Sparks. There you go. He was acquitted for that in 1884, but he did run into more trouble in 1886. He had his issues. I'm the boss now. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. So from what I can tell, the area had a prohibition law in force during this time period. And a local guy, Pat Nolte, violated that. Papa Heyman, Frank is his first name, aha, uh -huh, busted him for it. And that created some ill will. Even just the trial, it was a standard prohibition thing, but it had its, its interesting moments. During Pat Nolte's trial last Saturday, one of the attorneys called another a fool and was immediately the recipient of a thump on the jaw by the opposing counsel. There was a fist fight? There was a fist fight, yeah, which made him quite weary, and he sat down with an immediateness apparent to all present. I think he got a concussion. And for some time appeared to be ruminating over his past sinfulness, or in shock. The justice said he had, quote, a good mind to fine them both, but somehow he didn't. The trial then proceeded without a ripple. Such is life in the great prohibition state of Kansas. This kind of him busting Pat Nolte was not really helpful for him because this started a lot of animosity in town. The paper alluded to some rumors purported to be from Heyman himself regarding Pat Nolte, which inspired another dude, Jesse Lawson, to beat up Papa Heyman. And the newspaper says, although the more particular provocation for this assault was the circulating by Mr. Heyman of some very low-down, filthy, and vulgar talk, that he said Pat Nolte had made. Hmm. So he's accusing Pat Nolte of saying filthy, vulgar things. And it was said that Lawson knocked Papa Heyman down and then pummeled him severely, kicking and punching him in the head and chest while he was down. This was on July 30th, 1886. So apparently Papa Heyman was not the marshal anymore. So the marshal arrested Lawson, and he was charged with disturbing the peace. Meanwhile, 
Papa Heyman's health had been bad for a few years, and when Lawson attacked him, he was still recovering from what sounds like maybe a mild heart attack. Oh. That doesn't seem like a fair fight. No, it really doesn't. About half an hour passed, and then Papa Heyman started violently vomiting. After he went home and to bed, the charge on Lawson was changed to assault and battery. I guess you need to be beaten hard enough for you to vomit in order for it to count as assault and battery. Concussion. It's really the vomiting is the line, yeah. Some accounts also have Papa Heyman catching the initial disturbing the peace charge, which then seemed to vanish. So maybe the vomiting also cleared that right up? Don't know. Could be, yeah. Vomit is magical with the law, apparently. It did seem like the papers were being even more vague and squirrely about this whole situation than usual, probably because there were some agendas at play regarding prohibition. One said that Lawson beat up Papa Heyman for reasons known only to himself. And another used such a tangled sentence that it was impossible to see what was going on. It was just a a word salad. Sure enough, another paper accused the other two of lying and trying to hide the connection to whiskey and prohibition enforcement. And then when that became impossible, trying to make it seem like this is just a natural consequence of enforcing prohibition, so I guess we better stop. Yep, (laughs) boys will be boys. If we don't want boys to be beating up other boys, we better stop making them not drink. Whiskey will make it better. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And they called them the Whiskey Cranks. Whiskey Cranks. Whiskey Cranks, saying that they were trying to do everything in their power to keep the attack from hurting their cause, or and then when that didn't work, trying to use it to help their cause. One of the accused papers fought back, this was amusing to me, basically saying, uh, yeah, you are attacking us for publishing this article, but every single article we published, you copied and published in your paper. So you published it too, and thieves. Neener, neener, neener. Yeah. So about two and a half weeks after the attack, Papa Heyman died. He was in his early 40s. His son, Jake, was 13. Oh, wow. Now, Jesse Lawson was charged with second-degree murder, but a few months later, he was acquitted. It was uh, 11 for acquittal and one for manslaughter before they got the one for manslaughter to come around to their side. Lawson would be in the papers on and off for liquor law violations over the next decades, And oddly, he was listed in the court docket, having committed another liquor law violation. And that was reported in the the local paper in 1902. One column over was an obituary for Will Heyman, the eldest Heyman's son, who died of lung disease at age 35. Oh, wow. And right next to him is the guy who basically killed his dad. Huh. That's got to be a kick in the nuts when you're reading your son's or cousin's or whatever obituary, brother's obituary. Uh, that's the probably the worst placement, but you have to know context to be able to see it. Yeah. Worst, worst placement we've ever seen. So as for Jake, young Jake, by the early 1890s, he was working in a nearby town and the newspaper reported the beginning of his career. George Coffey and Jake Heyman went to Elgin on Monday last. Jake has secured a position in Hartley's store at Elgin. The position was secured on Mr. Coffey's recommendation. Jake is a good salesman, a trusty clerk, and his position is a good one in the firm. We trust that he will do well in his work, and we feel confident that he will. So it seemed to be like a mercantile store, dry goods, general store, that kind of deal. A couple years later, he was working as a clerk in Texas. And his eldest brother, Will, still alive at that point, 
six years his senior, was living there too. They were both there when his, their sister Mary Susan, a.k.a. Susie, died at age 18 of a long illness. The newspaper said she had an abscess in her side. Aww. So with all this family trauma happening, Jake came back the next year to see his mother, and rather than return to Texas, he decided to start working for his law degree at the University of Kansas, and he would get that in 1898 as one of 70 graduates in that class. He seems to start working for or with the county's prosecuting attorney, which makes sense that he would be on the, the law enforcement side rather than de the defense side, considering what he's seen growing up. And he's well off enough to get himself a real smart mode of transport. <sighs> By the following fall, they report in the paper, Jake Heyman now drives about the fanciest team in town in speed, beauty, and pulling qualities that is hard to beat, and Jake is proud of them. One of the team is a mule about 13 hands high, so all that the points of his ears touch when they are extended forward. He has a standing forfeit that this mule can trot around any animal in sedan. He's basically like, my mule can beat up your mule. I didn't know that the papers reported on whose mule was better. Right, right. Well, it's Jake Heyman. He's, this a man was sexy destined, mule. This man, a sexy mule. That man has the sexiest mule I've ever seen. It's so big. That's the, uh, the like, 1890s version of she thinks my tractor's sexy. <laughs> she thinks my mule is sexy. <laughs> Crap, now that song's going to be in my head forever and I hate it. So, <laughs> very susceptible to earworms and sometimes I bring it upon myself. Istanbul, not Constantinople, has been stuck in my head for four weeks. <laughs> but that's nobody's business but the Turks. <laughs> that is correct. You are right. Nobody's business but the Turks. So, in September of 1898, the end of the month, Jake Heyman had been a lawyer for three and a half months when he got hitched to Georgia Perkins, who was two years younger than him. This is a very exciting time. He graduates. He gets a new job. He has this big, sexy mule. <laughs> he gets married, probably because she wanted his mule. Um, so there is no woman that can resist a giant mule. We love, love a big mule. So there you go, gentlemen. If you want to get hitched, make sure you got a big, sexy mule. Big, sexy mule. <laughs> the second possibility would be to have a big, sexy rooster. <laughs> I am also a fan of sexy roosters. <laughs> yes. We like our sexy farm animals. Wow, this got weird. <laughs> it did get weird. It just that one sentence took it weird. It was okay until I said that. Cock a doodle do. Cock a doodle do indeed. <laughs> so we have the marriage announcement for Jake Heyman and Georgia Perkins. And it says the groom is one of Sedan's most promising young attorneys. He was raised in Sedan from infancy and educated in the Sedan High School, of which he was a graduate. In 96 and 97, he attended the law department of the Kansas University, graduated. He's now assistant county attorney. He is a thorough businessman and very popular among his many friends. Miss Perkins comes from one of the best families in Caney and is a lady of good education and high accomplishments and qualifications, as well as of beauty. The marriage smacks somewhat of romance. Miss Perkins was visiting in Sedan when she and Mr. Heyman decided to get married. They quietly secured the necessary papers and the ceremony was performed last Friday night, no one being present except those necessary for the carrying out of the ceremony. 
so yeah, that was their wedding. They were just like, hey, let's get married. And then they did. It's really bizarre, though, because especially with their standing in society and in this time period, you would think it would be like a big to-do. Well, I do think maybe his mother might have something to do with it. She was very ill at this point in time. She had had uh, a case of overheat in August. And apparently even by like October, she was not doing well. And she ended up dying two and a half weeks after the clandestine wedding. Oh, so maybe they hurried up to get married so that she could be there for it. Exactly. That's what I'm thinking. So it was reportedly paralysis of the heart from the effects of overheat. The couple would go on to have two kids, Jake Jr. in 1901, and then eight years later, Olive Bell in 1909. But in 1900, Jake Heyman was running for county attorney, and he seemed to have some cattle of his own, maybe doing a little ranching. But when you're putting yourself out there politically, you're going to take some hits in the press. This is from the Freeman's Lance in Sedan, Kansas. Do not allow yourself to be beguiled into voting for Jake Heyman for county attorney on the pretext that he is going to allow the open door policy to predominate, for he is not going to do anything of the kind. He tells one class of people he will and the other side he won't, and there you have it. There is not a bigger bloodsucker in the county. Wow. He didn't apparently have any friends at that paper. No, it does not appear so. Yeah. So it seems he lost that race and for a while went back to manage a general store in Newkirk, Oklahoma, which was about 60 miles away from where they started and over 200 miles from Lawton. They sold their house not long after the election and moved by March of the next year. So he's like, I lost that election. I'm out. He's not one to settle until he finds the right spot. It's very much like his father. This is a man who is following in so many of his father's footsteps. The politics, the scandals, the the businessman aspect, and the moving around. But you know what? So, like, and even, even with our tiny, with the 40 elephants, you have to move around when things stop working. You can't stay in one place forever and expect to still grow. And this is a man that has a lot of ambition. Mm-hmm. Well, that ambition is not being, like, coming to fruition where he's at. So you have to go somewhere else. If you're not happy where you're at, you need to find a new room. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what he does. As soon as he loses that election, like, literally a couple weeks after the election, his house was sold. And he was like, we're out of here. Peace out, bitches. <laughs> Bye. So, yeah, he ended up moving to Lawton, Oklahoma by July 1902. There they had their children. Wasn't long before he was in a bit of trouble there, although, as we'll see, trouble seems to blow right past him. Once again, the Freeman's Lance in 1903 taking a shot at, at Jake Heyman. They love him so much. Oh, really? Seriously. And this is back in his the previous town that he was in. So they're actually like looking at the newspapers in his new town, and they're like, hey, Jake Heyman's in trouble. The following, taken from the Lawton Enterprise, looks as though if Jake Heyman don't watch out, the goblins will get him yet. J.L. Heyman and Rufus Canella had some difficulty late Saturday afternoon in which it is alleged that guns played a part. Mr. Heyman was tried this afternoon charged with gun-toting. Mr. Canella pled guilty and was fined $50 in police court this morning. Mr. Canella stated that Heyman sent a man to him Saturday with a proposal to drop the case against him if he would put up $2,300. Heyman produced a commission of special policemen signed by Mayor Turner. It was issued on the 15th. The court decided he had not violated the law, and he was dismissed. So he's trying to bribe this guy, essentially. 
to drop a case. That's some good lawyering right there. Yeah. You should drop this case. I have some money. Oh, you're not interested in that. This never happened. Or guns. Or guns. <laughs> yeah. So Heyman was on the political path, and he was advancing kind of quickly. He would take some more hits from the, the newspapers. The Lawton Constitution, the local paper there, started to get on his case a little bit. He was trying to be the, the land register, and they said, Jake Heyman don't look like a register of a land office to us. And all of the wreaths the News Republican may garland upon his brow and all of the dynamite it may place under the good mayor's official chair won't make Jake look any more like a register than he does now. Jake has all that he can do to read the private letters that citizens of the county write to Delegate McGuire and which are referred to him for expert opinion. It would be a shame to overwork Jake. He has no great aptitude for labor unless it is of a mischievous political character, and that is not the kind of work that succeeds best in a government land office. I I got hung up on dynamite under the mayor's chair. Yeah, I don't know why. I was like, we can do that? <laughs> if you're Jay Kamen, maybe. So he would, at various times, be the city attorney, the judge, the mayor. The mayor thing didn't work out. He was voted out of office due to some uh, shady dealings with some gamblers. There was also a lot going on during this time period regarding the Native American land in Oklahoma. And Jake was very much behind white men owning this land. He did a lot of work, including traveling to D.C. multiple times in support of opening up what was called, quote, the big pasture for settlers. That was a particular Native American land area. So we're going to take it and I'm going to sell it to you. And um, we'll just go ahead and move those Native Americans elsewhere. Because whose land is it? Mine. It basically is. It's very. I'm not sure how much the Native Americans got screwed just because I don't have specific numbers. But it, it definitely feels like they got screwed. Um, oh, they certainly did. Yeah. I, the only number that I really saw in there was that the land contracts for their land was $30 million. Okay. I did see that the government ended up giving 160 square acres to each child born of the three original tribes that owned it after 1900, and then they sold the rest by sealed bid. So it depends on how many children there were in those three tribes, but I did the math and there would need to be 3,000 children for there to be none left over to sell in the sealed bids. So I'm pretty sure that those children didn't really get a lot compared to all that was sold in the and of course they're sealed bids this is a private transaction yeah and on top of that this is early 1900s the child mortality rate is through the roof and probably every time a kid died they just oust those people yeah right be like oh it wasn't yours it was actually your son's sorry about that yeah he's gone now bye so Jake Heyman spent months in D.C. in 1905 and 06 representing his area in a delegation that was supporting opening up the pasture for settlement. He was paid either $2,000 total or $2,000 a month. I haven't done this in a while. Sources very wildly. Uh, but one way or the other, $2,000 is $67,000. So he, he definitely made out pretty well. He either made out pretty well or really well. Really well, yeah, because he was out there for like three or four months. It was just, that was all the paper was talking about for months. It was really just great. <laughs> he was also working for Oklahoma to attain statehood. 
although it seemed like there were some questions as to how indispensable he actually was in that regard. He was trying to make it look like he was real indispensable. You well, can't do politician. this without me. Exactly, yeah. But there was a little kerfluffle in the newspaper about a telegram that Jake allegedly sent or that was fraudulently sent on his behalf that made it look like Lawton might not be included in Oklahoma when statehood came. But Jake Heyman would make it happen. So he made it look like, oh, we're in danger of not being included in the state, but I got to come save the day. And the Oklahoma Farm News and Mineral Kingdom newspaper said that there was never any danger of Lawton being taken off the roster for inclusion in Oklahoma as a state. So that was all kind of ginned up in order to make him look more important in the whole situation than he was. Pretty quickly, Heyman had that uh, editor charged with criminal libel. And the editor was arrested and held on $500 bond. But the editor was found not guilty because the prosecution couldn't produce the original copy of the telegram and it all just kind of fell apart. Now, around this time, a weird thing starts happening in the press coverage of Jake Heyman. He gets a title. They start calling him Colonel. I saw that and was very confused. It's very strange because I'm pretty sure he's not. No, there was nothing about any sort of, like, military service that I saw. Right? And he would have been very busy with the politics. So, yeah, I didn't understand that. Yeah, I mean, he, he went to Texas and worked in a store. He went to law school in Kansas. Like, there's no, there's no time that it was like, oh, yes, he entered the military. So, yeah, very strange. And his dad was in the military, but I don't think his dad was even as high as a colonel, so very, very weird. He probably just bribed somebody. He probably did, yeah. I want to be a colonel now. Or he just started calling himself colonel because he's the kind of person who could just say things and people believe it. Oh, that is really possible. I, I think that that's probably what happened. He probably drunkenly told some fake story some night in order to kind of try to boost himself up. And it was like, oh, when I was a colonel in the army... And that's another thing that it's funny that it happens around this time when he's starting to have more mud being kind of slung at him regarding possible shady dealings. That he's like, well, maybe if I have the sheen of respectability from a fake army commission. All right. I'm putting I'm putting it together now. He's got a huge mule and <laughs> he's got this fake title and he talks himself up all the time. And when things don't go right, he runs away. He has a very tiny rooster. <laughs> His rooster is quite small. It's, it's very small and like doesn't even like crow. <laughs> it probably crows way too early. <laughs> way too early, like two o'clock in the morning. Jesus. Yeah. So that's what's happening here. I mean, it's speculation, but uh, it feels accurate. It feels right. It feels right. So Jay Kamen continued through the ranks of politics. He snagged a chairmanship on the Oklahoma Territory Republican National Committee. He also became a lobbyist. After that, he got into another scandal when he was accused of bribing a senator. But somehow he always manages to just skate clean away from these things. Because he's a politician. Yeah. Oh my God. Every politician ever across time is a liar and a cheat and a criminal. And we're just like, yeah, we'll listen to you and follow you into fire. Why? Oh my God. Right. I know. Yeah, I know. I know. So I need a cigarette and a drink. <laughs> so Jake Heyman ended up 
doing a lot of business stuff. In 1912, he built a railroad with John Ringling. He didn't build the fucking railroad. He just stuck his name on it like a politician. Well, yes. (laughs) But it seems like they did pick out the territory where the, the railroad would cover, and there was a lot of oil in that area. So, I mean, but that's just pure luck. Then he uh, he bought more property, spread out his holdings and ventures down into Texas. Then there was an oil boom in Desdemona, Texas, starting in 1918. And because of that boon, one of the towns along the rail line was named after him, Jake Amon. I feel like he just travels around and licks things to claim them as his own. Well, it's not just him. Uh, that town was established in 1919. It's not really a, a town anymore. But to be fair, he named other towns on the rail line after his friends. There was Jim Kern, Ed Hobby, Frankel, and Breck Walker, which is uh, for Walker Breckenridge. But the other ones are all the people's names. He said he had more names lined up for future towns. J.K. Men didn't last long, but you know, it's now known as Hog Creek. So there's that. That sounds better. <laughs> yeah. All things considered, and we'll get to that. Yes, right? He was, by all accounts, a millionaire. By 1920, his fortune was estimated between 15 and 30 million. Saw different numbers everywhere. But at the most, it was 430 million in today's money. He was the richest man in Oklahoma and one of the richest in the entire U.S. He did well for himself. He did fine. He just had some dirty dealings. So during the very heady years of the 1910s, as he's building himself up in business and politics, he also has something else going on. He has a love life. You remember Clara Barton Smith? Working in that store in Lawton? Well, Jake Heyman frequented that store. So she was probably around 17, but it's hard to say just because literally this is the most sources very wildly I've ever seen. Yes. But from her account, it seems like she was 17. So that would have actually been around 1908 if, if, if her birth year is reported correctly. Well, I had her birth year reported differently than you did. Ooh, what did you have? Uh, shoot. Oh, don't worry about it. It's, it's, it's okay. I'm just curious. Uh, 1894. Okay, so all right. So that shaves three years off. Yeah. We don't really know. It was sometime, I'm going to say, between 1908 and 1912. Because around 1912, Jake and his family moved to Ardmore, 100 miles away. So he wouldn't have been in Lawton all the time to go to the store. So Clara later said, you know, oh, I was a schoolgirl at the time. I was clerking in a store. And she said, quote, He got to coming in quite constantly, wouldn't allow anyone to wait on him but me. Sometimes I think that girls are provided with a wonderful instinct planted in their beings by God. This instinct ought to guide them. It ought to have continued to guide me, as it did at first. For I hated him in those first meetings. I didn't like his eyes, the way he'd stare and leer at me. But he was a masterful man. End quote. So we mentioned that childhood sweetheart of hers that she would go riding around town with. Well, Jake asked her one day when he was at the store, he's like, you know, if I got an automobile, would you go riding with me? And Clara replied, I wouldn't go riding with you if you had a string of automobiles. Again, we're getting this all from her side. Just keep that in mind. Then around Christmas, Jake came into the store and Clara said, oh, why don't you buy one of our new furs for your lovely wife? And he said, 
I'll buy you all the furs you can wear if you'll come see me sometime at my office. Clara said her face burned from the insult. It's it's all in the innuendo and the, the tone and the delivery. Yeah, yeah. It's not like, oh, why don't you pop by my office and visit me sometime? It's, I'll give you some furs if you'll come see me at my office. Wearing nothing but that fur. <laughs> exactly, yes. But she admitted she did eventually go to his office. She said, quote, The man became wonderful in my eyes after we had become sweethearts. The first day in his office, quote, he put his hands under my arms suddenly and set me up on on the long legal table that stretched across the room. He was astonishingly abrupt. Clara, he said, I love you and I'm going to have you. Oh, my. This is quick. Yeah, this is quick. Now, later it said that the, quote, turn in the road in their relationship, which is a euphemism for banging, happened in 1914. By my birth year, she would have been 23 then. So by your birth year, she would have been 20. If they've already known each other for like four to six years at this point, I'm kind of doubting it, but we, we can only go by what we have. I don't think they waited that long. I think he probably took her right on the table, if that was accurate at all. <laughs> I don't think it was, judging by some stuff she says later, I, I think she made him wait for a while. I think she held him off for a while. Well, I, I think she probably did, too, because then he he put her through school. And so I think it was probably after that that... Yeah, we don't know exactly how young or old she was, but there is, you know, a, an 18-year age difference here. And there's also an extreme power differential. Extreme. She's a schoolgirl. He's a politician and a millionaire, or he's going to be a millionaire soon. Yeah, there's there's definitely that. but And it was a lot different back then than it is now, mm-hmm. in my opinion, because... I think I'm hilarious, and that power differential turns me on, but not for the fact that you'd think. (laughs) Because, like, I feel like you would have to keep it a secret, and you can say some really fucked up shit, and they can't tell anybody. (laughs) Wow, that is an angle I had never considered. Like, just imagine, like, riding somebody and being like, oh, yeah, Howie Mandel, I want to lick your head like a lollipop. (laughs) Which I have actually yelled out in bed one time. Oh, God. Oh, that's beautiful. But, like, they can't tell anybody. So you can let all the crazy out. And they can't do a thing about it. So, like, even if I was the secretary, I would be hopping on that cock-a-doodle-doo. <laughs> because I'm so weird, and I get off on shit like this. Like... <laughs> The the problem here is you need to find a politician and you hate politicians. I would oh, never. Also, you're married, that too. I, I would never, though, with a politician because they're, they're slimy. <laughs> it's like Christina Aguilera circa early 2000s. They just look sticky. <laughs> I could not. Um, also, special thanks to the Libarbian for um, making me yell that in bed and then not explain it because I lost a bet to her. Uh, wait, you, oh, you, you, that was your punishment for losing the bet. Yes, I lost okay. the bet. And when I you say to... making me yell that in bed, I thought it was like, do Amber and the Light Barbian have a history I don't know about? <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, no. Um, yeah, I, I don't even remember what the bet was about, but like that was the rule is I had to yell that out with the, the guy I was dating at the time. 
And we pretty much abruptly ended things shortly after that because I was not allowed to ever say <laughs> why I yelled, oh, Howie Mandel, I want to lick your head like a lollipop. Did you actually lick his head? Because that would just be the, the, I the did. cherry on top. Yes! Yes! I'm pretty sure I licked his forehead, but he wasn't bald. So, like, <laughs> you, like you just have to stop at the forehead. <laughs> oh, I love it. So there you go, folks. You learned a little more about me. <laughs> A little more than you expected, but I bet you enjoyed it. So Jake got Clara into business school and she went to finishing school. He paid for all this and she began working as his secretary. She said around 1913, she made $35 a week. Uh, the worth today of that would be about $1,000 a week. She's making 52 grand a year. It's not bad. It's not bad. Yeah, especially when you're in your teens, for God's sakes. Now, continuing that earlier quote, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add to that and, and flesh it out with context here. The one that I said, it sounds bad. From a common school education and little experience, she became trained mentally until she was frequently in the position of advisor and confidential assistant to Heyman, being consulted by him in political matters, including railway and townsite building, the oil game, and otherwise. If you hear any sort of dull roar in the background, apparently the long-promised storm has arrived. <laughs> It has come. It is raining. She seems to be quite the voice in his ear, quite the advisor to him. He relies on her a lot. We'll never know exactly how much, just because, again, this was a secret relationship, you know? A description of her from the Daily Oklahoman. She has always been an unusually pretty, attractive woman who understood the art of dressing well and luxuriously whenever possible, and always was a lover of jewels and personal adornment. And she also became, in addition to being Jake Heyman's secretary, his niece-in-law. Yeah. A little bit of a weird setup here, but uh, his nephew married her in 1916. For some reason I have Walter here, but I think it was actually Frank. Frank L. Heyman. Now, this was arranged by Jake himself, who got his nephew to marry Clara and then just casually meander over to California, abandoning his young bride, who would then have a little bit of cover for her ongoing affair with Jake. This cost Jake about $10,000 or $271,000 today. Another source has it at $100 a month, which is $3,600 total if Jake actually kept paying him throughout all this time, or $50,000 today. Hey there, beloved listeners. If you're enjoying this episode, then you absolutely should check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, which is the absolute best way you can support the show and get something in return. For just $5 a month, you get five bonus episodes a month. On the Patreon, we frequently talk about old-timey crimes you won't hear about anywhere else. Crimes that have been forgotten by time and erased by history that you won't read about on Wikipedia, Murderpedia, or really any pedia. We also delve into the old newspapers for the wacky wild crimes like the thieving lion tamer and the spaceman intruder. Or talk about strange, delightful customs like Nutting Day, while learning about the time people rioted over cheese. <laughs> so come we can't even talk about it in our own promo without giggling. I love Nutting Day. 
Nutting Day is the best day. So come check out the Patreon for more of the weirdest, wildest, and most shocking old-timey crime. That's patreon.com slash oldtimey crimey. Where's the link? In the show notes. <laughs> I knew I was not going to get through Nutting Day without giggling. Clara admitted that this was uh, not exactly a marriage of romance. She said her marriage to Colonel Heyman's nephew was for the former's convenience, and that she never lived with him for a minute, and that it was not supposed they would live together. Yes, that was Frank Lewis Heyman that she Thank married. you. Yeah, I, I don't know say, why I have the divorce thing in here yeah. somewhere. I don't know why I have Walter. I don't. I don't know. There was a lot going on. It's <laughs> it's a lot. So one of the reasons we know about this is because Ruth Walker Heyman married Frank after after and came out and told everybody about this. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, she was she was in the papers a lot. So stories went around that she later said that the wedding was just to give her the Heyman last name and that she and Jake were still, quote, on good terms, which is another good euphemism for banging. Well, yeah, and that was, I think that was my theory anyway, was you give her the last name, now they have matching last names, and you can travel together more freely because people would assume that maybe it's a cousin. Niece? Niece, perhaps, exactly. And it, you get less questions if you have matching names. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. There, there may be another aspect to it, but that's something we're not going to get to until uh, part two. This is a two-parter, by the way. <laughs> yeah, but like at least for the first part, I think that that was really easy to, to travel together. Yeah, yeah. And book adjoining rooms. Because my niece is here to help me with things. She's my secretary. And if you show up a 40-something-year-old man with a upper teens, lower 20s, pretty young girl, there'll be questions. And when you say, oh, she's my niece, or I'd like to, you to meet my niece, Clara smith Heyman," they'll be like, oh, okay, it's fine. Yeah, this, she's is, niece. this is all on the up and up. Yeah, they won't even think about the fact that she's married to his nephew. <laughs> she's not blood-related. Still weird, but... Clara made this into a bet as to whether she and Jake were still together. I will wager you that the diamond ring he is now wearing will be on my finger tomorrow. And sure enough, it was. She was wearing it the next day. So around her own accounting, she was around 20 or 21 when she moved in with Jake, which I assume at this point means staying in a separate residence, probably the hotel paid for by him because he was still with his wife at that point. She said she'd worked for him for around two years before moving in with him. They were known in 1920 to be living in adjoining rooms at the Randall Hotel in Ardmore. And, uh, however, here's the thing. I think it was earlier than that. Because the Daily Ardmoreite... I have that one too, yeah. ...reported in October 1916 that she had pierced her foot with a needle in the, her room at the Randall. And she had to go to the hospital for that. That was the same year that she married his nephew. No word on whether Jake was around, but that feels awfully suspicious that she's at the same hotel four years before everybody's like, oh, she's living at the Randall with him. Yeah. Sometime during this period, Clara's father found out what was up. He drove to Ardmore, where they were living, to kill Jake, but the sheriff disarmed him. What a good dad. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, she's she's of age. She's free to make her own choices. Can't go around trying to... Even if they're bad ones. Even if they're bad ones. You can't go around trying to kill everybody your daughter tries to date, you know? It's, it's very... It has that slightly uh, caveman possessiveness to it. Like, no, just mine. Just mine. You no date. That's a weird caveman impersonation. Okay, I'm not good at impersonations, especially if I'm not prepared. And I was not prepared to break out the caveman. So I feel like caveman would be more like, ugh. Ugh. Yeah. But yeah, he just says, ugh. And then hits you with a club. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And also, figuring things out, is Georgia, the wife of Jake Heyman. She took the kids to Chicago to live. And basically, you know, she was separated from Jake. Jake and Clara were living it up in this hotel, and Jake was paying Georgia all costs for the kids, plus $10,000 annually. From 1915 to 1920, that's between 150000 and 200000 So It's a good deal of money. That'll, that'll take care of you and the kids, yeah. And that's, that's an addition to the cost for the kids. That's just her fun money or whatever, or her rent money. <laughs> rent it, and fun. It is, it is her salary for being a mother. Yes, exactly. So Clara knew about Georgia and the kids, and she said she wasn't jealous of Georgia at all. Of course, she also said that Jake had promised to marry her. This is really interesting. He did have her sign a contract releasing him from all obligations except for caring for any children she bore during his life. Quote, provision should be made for such child during Haman's life, the child to be recognized as a Haman heir, and to share in division of the property at Haman's death. Just put a pin in that, I'm just saying. Then the presidential election of 1920 came along, and this was going to be the beginning of Haman's real rise to power. So his guy, Warren G. Harding, got the nomination and won the election. And the thing was, is that Georgia, Jake's wife, was a cousin to Warren G. Harding's wife. So there's a family connection to the incoming president. But that family connection is estranged and living in Chicago. And that's a problem. That's a problem. Jake is about to be in the big leagues after all these years of politics and baroning and bribery and extortion and lobbying. He was voted into the Oklahoma Republican National Committee in 1920. And so he was also part of all the jockeying and deal-making that went on behind the scenes to pick out Warren G. Harding. And so because he was such a, a force in that, there were people figuring that he would get a cabinet post. And even the weekend before Thanksgiving in 1920, there were articles asking the question, quote, will Jake Heyman control the House? I don't know how he would control the House of Representatives from a cabinet post, but... November 21st, 1920. It's a Sunday. And Jake and Clara are in their rooms. He had been off at his office drinking with some some buddies and talking politics, I'm sure, and stuff like that for a little while and then had come back. There's a story that'll go around that a $200,000 life insurance policy had been delivered to his hotel just two hours before all of the following happened. And I do put a lot of credence into that just because the life insurance policy was delivered by one of the men that he was hanging out with in his office. Mm. 
So it feels like that's all, that, that lines up. Jake and Clara have been seen downstairs in front of the hotel arguing. They go inside. The porter delivered dinner to Clara's room. She had had all of her doors locked. When the porter came and she let him in, Jake slipped in behind the porter. Across the street from the hotel, a woman looking out her window could see into Clara and Jake's rooms. The lights in the room were out, but the street lights were enough to show the outline of a man raising a chair over his head like a weapon. Not too long after that, Jake Heyman showed up at the hospital, having walked the two blocks from the hotel by himself with a bullet in his side. It had gone into his liver. They're taking him into the operating room, and he tells someone, I don't know if it's a doctor or a nurse, it's just reported that he said the following words, Don't tell anybody about it, and if anyone asks you, tell them it was accidental. So they have their marching orders. They perform the surgery. They remove the bullet. They drain his stomach of blood. Clara stays in town overnight. The next day, she visits him in the hospital briefly and then leaves town. The papers say she put her baggage on a train and checked it for Kansas City, but did not depart on that train. Other reports say that she left in a car. The papers say the police are looking for Clara or an oil worker, but Jake is still insisting it was an accident. It happened while he was cleaning his pistol and getting ready for a hunting trip. And his friends are sticking with this story, too. They're very loyal to it. His business manager, Frank Ketch, said he checked every detail Jake gave him. Quote, I found the shells as he said he had left them and all articles in his room as he had described. He told me he was loading his 25 automatic, which he always carries when on a trip, and that as one of the shells was inserted, the explosion came. He had been planning a hunting trip to Texas and Montana. No one was in the room with him. Uh, Frank Ketch disproves stories or tries to disprove stories that there was anybody in the adjoining room because people were saying there was either a girl over there or there was a man who had heard a quarrel between Jake and a girl in his room. And Frank Ketch tries to put this, he tries to frame this as a political hit job. He's saying, no, people are just coming after him because he's getting big in politics and they want to take him down. So they're trying to create a scandal where none exists. It was just an accident. Two other men who were with Jake that afternoon, one of them being the insurance agent who delivered that policy, both, quote, emphatically denied that any woman was connected with the case. In fact, his friends insist that any bad rumors about Jake came from a time when he really, really helped someone. His pure heart full of gold, he reached out and he lifted up a poor young woman from the gutter. He found a poor girl in an Ardmore rooming house and proceeded to, quote, help her lead a straight life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that feels like a, a variation of Clara's story, but not a flattering one. He put her right on the straight and narrow, and she bounced up and down on it <laughs> yes. until it was more comfortable. And she said, Howie Mandel, I want to lick your head like a lollipop. <laughs> but he could say nothing. And Amber got turned on, so... So where is Clara? That is kind of the big question at this point. There's a manhunt on for her. The police are searching train cars for her. And she is being charged with the shooting. But both she and Jake are charged with adultery. Bum, bum, bum! Yeah, this whole uh, 
this whole it was an accident thing seems to not really be pulling the wool over the police's eyes. I tripped, fell, landed on his dick. Right? Then the police said they wouldn't serve the warrant on him until his condition improved. Now here is the long headline in the Ponca City News on November 23rd, two days after the shooting. Seek woman charged with shooting Heyman. Mrs. Clara Heyman, nay Smith, said to be fleeing to California following charge of intent to kill and statutory offense placed against her. Wound serious. Heyman's condition said to be worse. He is nevertheless cheerful and apparently little concerned about woman's story spread broadcast. What? I know, I know. Were they writing this with those refrigerator magnets? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Just pick a word from the magnet. Yeah, it's... I think they just needed, like, another preposition somewhere about woman's story spread by broadcast, even. It's, it's still clunky, but it's better. Or even just uh, cut off some words. Apparently little concerned about woman's story. That would be fine. Yeah. By Wednesday, three days after the shooting, the general attitude is expressed by the Ponca City News... Quote, can't convict woman if Heyman sticks to story. The article there states that a guest had witnessed Clara and Jay together at the hotel shortly before the shooting, having a quarrel. The general theory seems to be that they were fighting over another young woman. The Ponca City News then goes on to say, Clara Heyman and Jake Heyman had occupied adjoining rooms at the Randall for a considerable time. They had been apparently on as friendly terms as ever during the years they had been together since Heyman met her when, as a girl of 16, she was a clerk in a Lawton store. They also say she was, quote, alleged to have been his private secretary for years. When do you have to use alleged in relation to being a secretary? That's definitely, that's innuendo and shade, and I love it. Yeah, I was going to say, because she was definitely his secretary. Mm-hmm allegedly his lover, and that paper was like, no, flip it, it's way funnier this way. <laughs> she was allegedly his private secretary. I'll be her private secretary. Secretary for money. <laughs> <laughs> that's not how it goes. No, that's not, but I like how we're referencing, like, every song. So, some newspapers are kind of going with the whole, oh, it was probably an accident, but here's some other facts we're just going to present without comment. But the Enid events is having none of these shenanigans. This newspaper's article begins, When Jake L. Heyman accidentally shot himself, the political jackals of the state of Oklahoma immediately got busy. They snarled and snapped with a great show of bravado and began circulating lies and calumnies, none of which had the slightest basis of truth. And this article ends, The accusations will fall of their own weight. Like all venal and vicious fabrications, they will disintegrate and never be heard from in final considerations. Mr. Heyman will emerge triumphant from the muck, and mud sought to be tossed upon him. He will assume his full stature and grow greater in the eyes and estimation of Oklahoma's people. Every year will add to the grateful appreciation of his fellow citizens. This paper, he has friends at, apparently. He does. <laughs> they are impressed by his giant mule at that paper. Or he's given them money. That's the more likely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe he gave them all giant mules. Maybe, maybe. Here, have some sexy mules. And uh, by no means do you need to write anything positive about me. But if you really like the mule, maybe you'll, uh, you'll do that. Because it would be a real shame if something were to happen to that mule. Right? Right? So Jake was said to still be doing well. And that day he had food for the first time since the shooting. The attending doctor said Jake was practically out of danger. 
By Wednesday, his wife and daughter were up to see him, but uh, Jake Jr. wasn't there yet. He was in school. Then they tell us that on Thursday, Thanksgiving, this is a description from the newspaper, that he, quote, passed the crisis shortly before midnight last night when attending physicians succeeded in getting a first bowel passage and complete evacuation of the intestines and lower bowels, which had been in a congested and tightened condition. Yum. Usually they just gloss over stuff, but this time they were like, no, we're going we're gonna to go into the dirty, dirty details. He hasn't and, pooped uh, in days. His asshole was so tight and puckered. Exactly. Uh, we finally got it. It took a little finger play, <laughs> a little bit of lube, some massage. So you're having coffee on Thanksgiving morning and just reading the paper. And this is like the first thing that greets you. You're like, oh, man. <laughs> I would rather be reading coffee and reading that than being the doctor that was sticking a finger in his dirt star. Well, that is true. That is true. One of these is definitely a better position to be in than the other. (laughs) Well, I guess it depends on who you are and what you're into. But yeah, sure, sure, sure. So uh, Jake spent Thanksgiving Day talking to friends and family. Then that night, he began having what seems to be a heart attack. Within eight hours, he was unconscious. Four hours after that, he was dead. Also imagine that being one of the last things that's published about you in the paper while you're alive. It's about your butthole. Yeah, really. I love it. The cause... He deserves that. <laughs> I'm not his biggest fan either. The cause of his death was said to be, quote, acute dilation of the heart resulting from the effects of the gunshot wound. His wife and daughter were at his bedside, but Jake Jr. didn't get there in time, which is sad. The papers are very curious about Clara. And they're wondering about these these stories that are coming out because stuff isn't seeming to line up. The men he was with at his office said he left them in the afternoon saying, excuse me, boys, I'll be back in a minute. So everybody was like, why would he say that and then go back to his hotel and clean his gun? Why was he suddenly struck with the urge to clean his gun and pack for his trip when he said he would be back in a minute? And Jake's death seems to kind of break this this wall of denial all his friends were putting up, to an extent. By the very next day, they're saying that they think Clara shot him because he had tried to break things off with her. And, you know, because of A, he needed to not have this scandal if they were caught, because he was going to be a Republican National Committeeman. And B, he needed to get back with his wife in order to secure that in with the White House. And keep in mind, this is November. He was shot on the 21st. The election that year was November 2nd. So it's only been a couple of weeks since this window to power has been opened for him. He's, he's probably been lining things up and getting his ducks in a row. Yeah, exactly. And part of getting your ducks in a row are getting rid of the unnecessary ducks that are not yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Had a necessary, very young duck. Yes. <laughs> Jake, uh, actually, while he was in the hospital, he wrote a bunch of notes to people, one of them to President-elect Harding. And he requested that that note be torn up after he read it. Harding did so. Afterwards, he said, What a wonderful fellow he was. Too bad he had that one fault, that admiration for women. Fuck you. Yeah, Indeed. Now, the papers are saying that even with the tide turning against her with all of Jake's powerful friends, getting a guilty verdict against Clara might prove difficult. 
because of the fact that Jake and his friends had said it was an accident for five days straight. Reasonable doubt, right there. Oh, yeah. Of course, they can't do anything until they find her first. And they can't find her. Jake's funeral is the Monday after his death. His body lies in state for four hours at the convention center. They stop all trains on his 110-mile train line for 10 minutes that day. Operations and his other business concerns were stopped for a full hour. Among those present were 2,000 oil field workers from the oil field where he had started his fortune, and he had 100 honorary pallbearers. You just got to give those little honorary titles out so people feel special. I'm telling you, tiny rooster. Tiny rooster. They're being pretty slick with the charges against Clara. They keep it as assault with intent to kill as the funeral approaches, and they say they think she might come to the funeral. Probably thinking, oh, well, if we keep it at a lower charge, we won't scare her away, you know. But if we change it to a murder charge now, any plans she had to go to the funeral are probably going to be like, nah, mm-mm. Not doing it. Which they should be anyway, because... It's a stupid thing to do. Yes. Yeah. And Mrs. Jake Heyman is actually endorsed by Republican leaders to take her husband's spot on the Republican National Committee. Ooh. Yeah. Now, we finally start to get a little bit more of a solid lead, maybe, on where Clara went. There's a taxi driver in Texas who said a woman had hired him to drive her to Cisco on November 23rd. So that would be two days after the shooting. The driver said, well, she didn't tell me her name, but said I would learn it in the next 36 hours. She said she had shot a wealthy man in in a hotel in Ardmore on Sunday night. He quotes her as saying, I'm not afraid of being convicted, but I don't want to be mixed up in the scandal. So. That's fair. She really should be a little afraid. (laughs) I feel like the scandal, though, is what makes it so much worse. That's true. That's true. Because that draws more attention. Everybody loves a juicy scandal. More people are paying attention. You can't sweep this under the rug. You can't keep it hidden. And so when you have all that extra spotlight on you, there's more press. And a lot more press saying, hey, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. Exactly. Exactly. So Clara told this taxi driver, quote, he lied to me, came in drunk and we quarreled. Then he treated me like only a brute would treat a woman. The driver said Clara was nervous and unstrung on the drive. And she also told him about the progression of their relationship. I've been with him ever since I was 17. He's married, but he and his wife were separated. They just got reconciled. The driver asked her how many times she shot this man. She said just once. He asked if she thought Jake would die. She said, I most certainly do. I hope so anyway. Regarding whether anybody knew about it? No, there aren't any but us two that know it, and no one else ever will. If he lives, he'll never tell. And if he dies, he'll never tell. I know I won't tell it either. He's worth a lot of money, and some of the men he thought were his friends helped me get away. I left my jewels there and my diamonds. They are worth several thousand. I gave them to a friend in Ardmore to keep for me. I love that she's like, I'll never tell, as she's telling a complete fucking stranger. His credibility will be called into just a little bit of question later. Yeah, exactly. But just in case, anybody, if y'all want to commit crimes, here's Amber's crime tip of the day. (laughs) The only way to keep a secret is to tell no one. No one. Not, Not somebody you trust. 
No one, fucking no one. Shut your mouth and nobody ever finds out. This has been Crime Tips with Ember. Actually, Old Timey Crimey totally endorses keeping things a secret when you need to. Yeah, like you, <laughs> you didn't say anything that's like really like bad there. That you... is the only way to keep a secret is to not tell anybody because we see this so many times in these crimes where you tell that one trusted person and then several years later you get into a, an argument and they blow your shit up. Don't fucking tell anyone. No one. I tend to believe that this guy made it all up. Oh, he and probably just did. got everything just from the newspaper. Case. Just in case. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do think that. He said that Clara said the three of Jake's friends packed her trunk and shipped it to Kansas City. She didn't even see this happen. It was just kind of like his arranging. Jake arranged for this to happen or his business manager did. And she said she couldn't take the trains because there were so many oil men in Texas and they all know her and will recognize her. He also reported she carried two guns on her lap for part of the trip, for some reason. And they talked about what kind of gun one should use to be sure whether a person they shot was killed, a new one or an old one. He told her, quote, an old gun that is rusted is best for killing a fellow. Wrong. Well, you know. I mean, you can get that infection in there, but if it's an old gun that's rusted and it's not been taken care of, you're probably not going to be as, as good of a shot. Yeah, why not both? Sure, just use them both. Double the the chances, I suppose. Yeah. Well, she said, I wish I had known this. And yet somehow in his telling of the story, he said he didn't get suspicious until they got to Cisco. So this whole entire trip. Yeah, this was totally fine. People get in my taxi all the time with guns and they, they play with them and talk about killing people and admit to me that they kill people. And uh, they just sit there with guns and it's totally fine. Yeah, yeah, totally fine until we get here, and you're acting real shady now, now that we've reached your location. You're acting kind of twitchy. Like, what the hell? So he said that, uh, you know, she had him buy her a ticket to El Paso, and she planned to head to Mexico after that. Now, after this comes out, the county attorney finally announces an award for $100 for the capture of Clara. He also announces that they suspected friends of Jake, wealthy oilmen, had helped her escape, and if they found out who, they'd charge them as accessories after the fact. So I do think the county attorney put some stock into what this driver said at this point. Because he's, he's taking the information that she gave the county attorney, and he's at least threatening to act on it. Yeah. So then they find something really juicy. I love juicy things. They find her diary. And we will talk about that in part two. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know. I was looking at this and I was like, where's the bitchiest point I could stop this? So coming up in part two, what did Clara write in that diary? Will the police find her? And what is the limit on people who are related to each other being important players in a court case? Yeah, I actually have that question, yeah. too. Because in Oklahoma, the sky, the sky is the limit. I don't know much about Oklahoma. Maybe they're all related? Yeah, maybe. So I do have a recipe for you. Oh, okay. Tell me something I can put in my mouth. <laughs> I can tell you lots of things you can put in your mouth. Um, so how about some fruit soup? 
I actually make fruit soup on occasion. Okay. All right. All right. So uh, probably not the same thing, but I enjoy a lovely chilled mango soup in the summertime. Okay. All right. I can see that. This is for a special company soup to serve cold as a first course in the hot weather. A fruit soup is delicious. Take the juice from a can of pineapple, add juice of one half lemon, bring to a boil and thicken with just enough cornstarch to make it like a puree or rather thick cream soup. Let this get very cold and add enough grape juice to color it. Any combination of fruit juices can be used, always planning to put together one sweet and one sour juice. This is from Mrs. Z. Wetmore in Sedgwick County, Kansas. Uh, I would not eat that because I am allergic, but it's good sweet and sour mixed together to balance each other out. Cold soup. Think of it like a, uh, a cold fruit smoothie, but it's soup. It's actually quite lovely. I just, I have, a, I have trouble with the, uh, the idea of a smoothie as a, as a soup. I, I want a straw. Well, and you know what? So I've made this several times, and my dad actually makes me give it to him in a cup with a straw because he refuses to eat it as a soup. But it, it's supposed to be a soup. But yeah, it's the same thing. Okay. All right. Yeah, I would, I would just bring a straw. You, you can just drink out of the bowl like you're a little kid, and it's cereal. Here you go. Yeah, I, I could do that. So, and we have a shout out to new patron. This is going to be a hard one to do. It's a, like a nickname type thing, but I'm going to do my best to do it in my singing voice. Masked Lass. Do my best. Masked Lass. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Masked Lass. It's hard for me to say. I'm struggling with it. It is hard to say, <laughs> but I enjoy that. I think that's good. Yeah. So welcome to the Patreon and... Don't forget about merch, uh, the Patreon. All the links are in the show notes of ways you can support us. And, uh, yeah, I'm not going to go down the, the big promo hole. <laughs> stay away from that we'll, hole. We'll stay out of that big hole. Staying out of the promo hole. So, uh, what you doing this week, Amber? Um, what when, I'm trying to think of like when this is going to air so I can say the right thing. This coming Friday. All right. So um, Memorial Day. Yeah. Memorial Day is coming up. I totally forgot about that. So I am um, probably just going to be still working on the garden. I have to get a fence up and stuff like that. Um, and hopefully having barbecue or fire or all. I don't know. I don't I haven't made it's too far away for me to plan it right now, but something will happen that involves Amber eating meats and fire and, and fire and drinking. Yes. So there will be meat, fire, drinking, and a happy Amber. That sounds fantastic. What are you doing? Um, I have absolutely no idea. It's too far away. It's too far away. Yeah. What am I doing this week? How are we going to do it when we do the... We're recording We're the second so part. Far. And let's like, just make something up. Yeah, let's just make something up. <laughs> I actually have an idea for what we're going to say for the next one. Okay. Because I right. have an idea of something we can do. Ooh, okay. All it's right. not, okay. I don't think it's illegal. I'll tell you more soon. Okay. All right. Well, I did say on Short Story Short podcast, uh, after, after Chris introduced himself as, you know, Hugo-nominated writer, and uh, I, I said I'm uh, nominated for best person in the world. So I'm also going to be uh, working on my best person in the world nomination because if I don't make things up, I got nothing. You're going to be <laughs> mistress of the universe. Mistress of the universe. I love it. So, all right. That is our show. And, you know, um, 
Don't be a politician who has affairs with uh, teenagers. And if you would like to keep a secret, do not tell anyone. Yeah, that's how you keep a secret, by not telling it. Yes. Therefore, you're keeping it. All right. We will see you next week with part two. It's going to be something else. You have no idea. <laughs> It'll be something. It'll be something. All right. We're going to go find us some mules. Some sexy, sexy mules. Bye. Bye. My sources are Gene Curtis on Tulsa World, Mark Anderson's essay, Tempting Fate in Looking Past the Screen, Case Studies in American Film History and Method, Wikipedia, the Cedar Vale Commercial, the Freeman's Lance, the Daily Oklahoma, the Ponca City News, the Lawton Constitution, the Morning Daily Tulsa World, the Tulsa Tribune, the Oklahoma City Times, and the Daily Ardmorite. My sources are MuskegeePhoenix.com by Edwina Sinar, Wikipedia, IMDb, New York Clipper Newspaper, StrangeTimes.com by William Akers, Newspapers.com, Thank You Chris Garcia, Selma Times Journal, The Andalusa Star, The Daily Ardmorite, Cincinnati Enquirer, Durant Daily Democrat, Lawrence Daily Journal World, The Gazette out of Cedar Rapids, and Miami News. And we are here this week to tell you all the true crime, 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 true crime tales of yore.